This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we continue our studies in this last of Paul's letters that we have in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. But understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. We give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, open to us your word this morning. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher and our guide into the truths that you have for us here. And we ask it for the sake of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. But understand this. The words have something of an ominous tone to them and and knowing what follows for good reason. And yet Paul ended chapter 2 on quite an optimistic note. Remember, he has been telling Timothy uh, how he should conduct his ministry in chapter 2. And particularly toward the end of the chapter, he instructs him not to be quarrelsome. He says in verse 24, rather to be kind to everyone, to be able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Because there's an expectation that his his truth and the manner in which he presents that truth will be effective, as Paul says in verse 25, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. 
and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's, after all, the goal. That's the hope, that these opponents of the gospel would be won over. Not just that they would be defeated in debate, but that God would grant them his grace, that they would come to repentance, that they would come to embrace the truth. But, Paul says to Timothy, understand this. See, Timothy is to understand uh, what many newly minted seminary graduates may not. And that is that he should not expect that every time he opens his mouth and God's truth pours out, that opponents of the gospel are going to wise up, see the error of their ways, acknowledge their waywardness, and come forward eagerly seeking to be corrected and to learn the truth. That may happen. Pray that that happens. And yet Timothy uh, is admonished by Paul. Understand this. What does he need to understand? Well, he needs to understand, as we need to understand, the nature of this world that we live in. The nature of people in this world that we live in. Now, Timothy knew, obviously, that there were opponents to the gospel. Paul's in prison. Paul is has been forsaken. He's been abandoned by those uh, he would have presumed were loyal to him. Uh, and Timothy knows the need to protect the gospel, to guard the gospel against error and against false teachers. So why does he say this? Well, he wants to remind Timothy, and he wants to remind us that this is the nature of the world. Times may get better, they may get worse, but... This is the nature of the world and the people of the world in which you and I live. So we should not be caught off guard at what we see going on around us. Now notice he says, and this often catches people's ears, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People often want to know, are we living in the last days? In fact, I had somebody ask me just recently, in light of the the unusual destructiveness of the tornadoes and the number of the tornadoes that we've had, it would be, do you think we're in the last days? And my answer is always the same. Most assuredly. Because we are. But you need to understand what Paul means and what the Scriptures mean when they refer to the last days. We tend to think of it as something futuristic, something that will happen right before the return of Christ, near the end of history. But you see, the Bible doesn't use the the expression last days quite in that way. Uh, The Bible actually uses that expression to refer to the time since Christ has come. The last days, as opposed to the former days, the days of the Old Testament, the days of the Old Covenant, are the days of the Messiah. The days when Jesus has come. Uh, we can see that certainly um, through the history of Scripture as we trace that out. Uh, Peter offers uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 an explanation of what is going on with a quotation from the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. He says in Acts chapter 2 verse 17, this was what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be. 
God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. You see, Peter's taking that quotation from Joel, which he's referring to his Greek translation of it uh, in the last days and says that this is a fulfillment that the events on the day of Pentecost are a fulfillment of what Joel said would happen in the last days. So Peter is including himself as being in the last days, the, the pouring out of the Spirit, the signs, the, the, the beginning of the spread of the church and the new covenant uh, was part of the fulfillment of what Joel said would happen in the last days. But we don't need to go far afield at all to see that uh, Timothy himself was living in the last days, as was Paul. Notice the description, we'll look at this in just a minute, but the, the kinds of things Paul says about people living in the last days. And we read these here and we say, you know, people are that way. We must be, you know, near the end. Well, yes, but people were that way in Timothy's day and in Paul's day. Otherwise, Paul would not have said, avoid such people, Right? I mean, it's not as if Timothy could say, well, that's easy enough. They won't be here for another two or three millennia, so I can avoid them easily enough. No, there were people in, in Timothy's own day. So very plainly, Paul, when he says in the last days, is including his own time, including Timothy's time, including our time. So if you would biblically understand the last days, think of it as the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Now, whether things will intensify in wickedness before the return of Christ is something of another subject entirely. Perhaps they will. But we need to recognize that Timothy and Paul, as well as we, are living in the last days. But he says there will come times of difficulty. He uses future tense, but his point is to make sure Timothy doesn't somehow think, well, this is, this is an aberration, this is abnormal, and it'll get better. Paul says, no, this is the way things are now, but they will continue to happen. This is how they will be. This is how it will be until Christ returns. So we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand verse 1. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Timothy's day and our day up until Christ returns. Now, as he goes on to describe, especially people, what people are like in this period of time. Uh, this time, yes, where the kingdom has invaded the earth, where the kingdom is growing in the earth, and yet people are still sinners who still are in a wheat and tares situation until the final harvest. This is what we can expect from people. And he, he describes people in several different ways. First of all, and, and by the way, including the tares being with even the visible church. Now, he describes them in, in, in several ways. One, he describes their bad Character, their bad behavior, the, the way that they are. And that's where we have this series of adjectives that uh, follow just in rapid fire succession, one after another. Their bad behavior, their bad character. What does he say about them? People will be lovers of self, uh, very self absorbed, self centered. There's nothing new in that. People were that way in Paul's day, they were that way in Timothy's time. Uh, lovers of money. Uh, most of these are, are quite self-explanatory. You don't need much elaboration. Uh, proud. The, the word has the, the, the sense of being somebody who's a bragger. You know, they're just boastful. 
uh, arrogant, uh, the haughtiness. They are abusive. This arrogance perhaps leads to an abuse. Uh, the idea is, is primarily verbal abuse, someone who speaks abusively of others. Uh, disobedient to their parents. Parents, lest you think, well, the return of Christ must be near. Uh, well, children were disobedient to their parents in those days as well. However, that is one that is worth noting because there's a specific command that addresses that in terms of children. Uh, honor your parents. Honor your father and your mother. Ungrateful. Yeah, sort of an entitlement mentality, not giving thanks to God for, for what they do have, but focusing on what they don't. Unholy. God is holy. We as people are to be holy. Heartless. Unappeasable. There's no making peace with them. Slanderous. Speaking evil. Without self-control, uh, which is notably one of the fruit of the Spirit. They're brutal. There's not a, a gentleness or a, a sympathy with them. Not loving good. They're treacherous. Verse 4, which by the way, the only other time we find that word in Scripture is a word which used to refer to Judas Iscariot. Reckless. They are not just conceited, they are swollen with conceit. They are puffed up with pride. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And he goes through this, this list, these characteristics. And, and we know people like that. We see people like that. But you know, Timothy did too. But this, this is fallen human nature. People will go on being this way up until the end. And we, even, redeemed in Christ, as we struggle with our own fallen nature, will find ourselves fighting against these things in our hearts. But before we move on, it's worth noting the bookends. Notice how these descriptions begin and end. First, we begin with love. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. And we end in verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You see, much of this comes down to what do you love? These people loved... But their love was misdirected. And that final phrase pretty much sums it up. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That could apply to all of them. Lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Lovers of money rather than lovers of God. You see, the, the basic problem, the fundamental difficulty here is idolatry. What is their heart set on? It's set on themselves. It's set on their money. It's set on their pride. It's set on building themselves up. It's set on seeking pleasure, seeking for themselves rather than seeking God, rather than loving God. So ultimately, you could say all of this arises out of misdirected love. What do you love? What does your heart pursue? What do you dream about? What do you think about? What do you expend your time and energies and funds Chasing after. You see, they they violate the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. It does not exclude enjoying the world. It does not exclude the Lord blessing us, perhaps, with money. But the question comes down to this. What do you love? See, fundamentally, their problem was not that they didn't love. Their problem was misdirected 
love? What do you love? What do you pursue? And so this misdirected love leads to this bad behavior, this bad character. They had, they had enthroned themselves, basically, as God, rather than the one true and living God. And that, that's, that's fundamental fallen human behavior. And so Paul is effectively telling us, look, you can expect that fallen people will be fallen people. Sinners act like sinners. Don't expect the world to act like believers. And in fact, as you and I know, again, we wrestle with this, even within our own redeemed hearts. But that's the key. We wrestle against it, and we repent of it, and we turn once again to the Lord, the one true God. So bad behavior is one thing he talks about here. But there's another thing that Paul warns Timothy and warns us about, and that is bad religion. Bad religion. Look at verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. You see, that's, that's the problem here, is that some of these people, at least, were in the church. You know, it almost sounds contradictory to, to describe them the way he does in those first verses, two through four, and then turn around and say they have an appearance of godliness. What does he mean? Well, it goes back to that age-old problem of a discrepancy between what we do on the outside and what's going on on the inside. Uh, we can trace this, of course, way back in the scriptures. One, one uh, great example of it is Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 14 and following. Uh, I'm going to go back to verse 12, uh, where the Lord is actually offended by the worship of his people. Verse 12. Of Isaiah 1, the Lord says, when you come to appear before me, and that is to appear before him in worship, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? See, to the Lord, it was just so much noise, just so much crowd. Bring no more vain offerings. The word vain means empty. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. What if God said to us, you know, you gather here on Sunday morning and it's just so much noise and my soul hates it. Serious words. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. They come and worship, and yet the Lord says, I am offended. It's an abomination. It, it wearies me, and I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. He says, when you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And goes on that great invitation. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What's God offended with? Well, he's offended with the fact, as Paul puts it here so memorably, they have... As he says in verse 5, the appearance 
of godliness. It appears that they're doing the right thing. To others looking on, they might think, oh, how devout, oh, how holy. A form of godliness. You know, Jesus takes the Pharisees to task for the same thing in his own day. If you look at Matthew chapter 23, uh, you can find it by feeling for the warm spot in your Bible, because that's a pretty hot chapter. Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus excoriates the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, uh, for abdication of their responsibility with, with how much they had been given in their learning, uh, and then their opportunity to teach people true godliness, and yet didn't. Uh, we won't go through all of the woes he pronounces on them, but we will notice just a, a couple of places, beginning in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, the plate, then that the outside also may be clean. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. A form of godliness, but denying its power. Dear friends, that is a real danger. Because saying you're a believer in Jesus, going to church on Sunday, or Easter, Christmas is a form of godliness. It sort of looks like the real thing. It is what the real thing would do, but it's not the real thing. It's like that whitewashed tomb, white and pretty on the outside, but full of decay and corruption and rot on the inside, full of death. Denying its power, what does that mean? Well, it means precisely that, that, that there's, there's the appearance, but there's not the reality of inner transformation. You see, the ideal is that you are here this morning because Christ has changed your heart, because he has shown you your sins, and that leads to a sense of, of, of guilt, of desperation, even perhaps despair, until you perceive the mercies of God in Christ who has also provided you the righteousness that you need. And in your heart, you have trusted in Christ. You have committed yourself to following Christ. You are devoted to him for every day that you live. And you are here this morning because you love him, because you want to worship him, because you want to be with others who love him and who worship him, because Christ is at work in your life. And whether anyone knew you were coming or not, you would be here. And that tomorrow you will obey him, whether anyone is watching you or not, because you love him and because his grace is at work in your heart. There is power in the true gospel. While Paul could write, the kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of power. Power that enables us to put our sins to death. Power that enables us and indeed impels us to live differently from the world. Dear friend, You need to ask yourself, is my Christianity a form of godliness that knows nothing of its transforming, sanctifying power? Beware 
that you don't fall under the condemnation of what the apostle is saying here. Because he's talking about people in the visible church. Do you love Jesus? Is he precious to you? Is his word precious to you? Or is this just a form that you go through? Children, are you here this morning only because your parents made you be here this morning? Because they brought you here. If they do that, that's a good thing for them to do. But I want you to ask yourself, if your parents weren't bringing you, and you had otherwise a means to get here, would you come? Because you love Jesus. Because you want to worship Him. Is Jesus at work in your hearts? Or is your Christianity children only a form of godliness in the shape of your parents? It's a big question, but it's one you need to wrestle with. Because one day it will be up to you to come to church or not. Which will you choose? Which will you do? So they had bad behavior. Uh, they also had this bad religion. And then in the last place, they have a bad influence. They, they, don't, they, they not only are ungodly themselves, and they not only engage in empty worship themselves, empty Christianity, but they lead others in the same paths. Notice what he goes on to say in verses 6. Among them are those who creep into households. The word is, is, is kind of a sneaky word. They worm their way in. They kind of creep in through an open window, kind of like a snake slithering in, I think is the picture. And they capture weak women. Now, Paul isn't saying all women are weak. He's saying that these particular women who come under their influence demonstrate weakness. The word is actually a diminutive. They capture little women, women who are small, Small in a couple of ways. Little uh, or weak in a couple of ways. Notice what he says. They're burdened with sins. These are women who are struggling with guilt. Guilt perhaps over things that they have done in their lives. And their, their consciences are deeply troubled. They're not only women struggling with guilt, burdened with guilt, but he says the women who are likely to come under their influence also are led astray by various passions. These are women who don't exercise a whole lot of self-control. They let their, their impulses get the better of them. And it is interesting, he notes, women, because you'll go back to Genesis chapter 3, and who was it Satan went after? It was Eve. Adam was apparently around, but Satan particularly targeted Eve. Well, it's interesting that uh, no doubt they had influence over men too, but he notes particularly it's the women that they go after, maybe perceiving an e- easy target, they're, they're burdened with their sins. They're, they're led astray by their impulses. They're also uh, intellectually unsettled. Notice what he says verse 7, and he's referring there to the women, particularly verse 7, always learning, never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Which, by the way, describes the modern secular university. You can always search for truth, don't declare to have found it. As long as you're searching, you're okay. But if you say, I found the truth... Ooh, that's bad. Well, we don't want to be people who are just sort of these intellectual dilettantes, always exploring, like the people in Acts 17, the latest ideas, but never settling, never coming to conviction, never standing on rock, rock of truth. Well, that's where these women were. They were unsettled. So they're burdened in conscience. They're given to impulsive behavior. And they simply don't have their feet planted on the rock of truth. And so they make an easy mark for these kinds of people, particularly uh, Paul, Paul says in verse 8, just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses. I don't remember them from, from Exodus. 
Well, that was according to Jewish tradition and Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. Those names came down, and, and they may well be authentic. They're not recorded in inspired scripture, but that's not to say that these names also, uh, except for here, of course, they were in Exodus. That's not to say that, they, that those weren't the names of these men. Obviously, Paul takes that as authentic. Uh, these magicians who opposed Moses by their counterfeit arts. Well, Paul likens current false teachers uh, to Janus and Jambres who opposed Moses. Well, if the false teachers are like Janus and Jambres, who is Paul comparing himself to implicitly? Moses, right? Moses was the great teacher of the law. Paul, the great preacher of the New Covenant gospel. Well, they're opposing Paul, and they're opposing Timothy. They're opposing truth. They're opposing the church. So these men also oppose the truth. They're corrupted in their minds. They're disqualified to be teachers. They're disqualified concerning the faith. And so that's where we are. This bad influence that they have on the church as a whole, but certainly singling out and targeting women that they perceive would be easy marks for them to pick off. Well, all of this is very discouraging. These people with this, this bad character, this empty religion, uh, this, this, this negative influence in the church. But Paul ends on a positive note, verse 9. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was those of those two men, Janice and Jambres. See, Janice and Jambres failed. They could counterfeit it for a little bit, but eventually they were overwhelmed by the reality of what was going on from the Lord through Moses. And they finally said, look, this is, <laughs> this is far beyond us. Well, Paul says that's what's going to happen here. Truth cannot be suppressed forever. Truth has a way of standing out. And falsehood has a way, eventually, of crumbling, of fading, of, of, of falling aside. As the, the true gospel of Christ, as the true believer in Christ, over time, uh, proves genuine, comes to be seen as the real thing. You know, this is one of those passages that, that on the whole is, is negative, uh, looking at it in terms of bad character, bad religion, bad influence. But the very nature of its badness points to the reality of the truth. And so we want to look, examine ourselves in light of this, not by following it, but by the opposite. Do you see in your life the fruit of the Spirit? Do you see in, in your behavior, in your words, the, 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 the Christ-likeness that Scripture calls us to and the fruit of the Spirit? Uh, do you see in your heart a desire to follow Christ because you love him and that you are being changed from the inside out? Uh, and do you see in one another and in yourself influence for good, influence challenging to grow in knowledge of the truth, to grow in living out godly behavior? As believers, we do. We should challenge and influence one another to that way. And in the teaching that you receive and in the, the, the lives of those over you, the scriptures say, look at those who teach you, consider the outcome of their faith, look at their lives, which we trust would be an encouragement uh, and a challenge to truth and to godliness. So a negative example here to be sure, but let us learn from it. Let us, as Paul says, understand this, that this will be the nature of people, even in our day, all around us, and we may even see it within the church but to be sure that we are the opposite. Godly character, godly religion, godly influence in the church and in the world. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, that it would be so. Uh, Father, protect our families, protect our church uh, from these kinds of things. Lord, we pray uh, that our lives would be the transformation of our hearts, our love for Christ. We pray, Father, our, our Christianity would be real and sincere, genuine. We pray, Father, uh, for good influences upon us and from us upon others that we would be your true people here in this world, that we would bring you glory, that we would be part of what you are doing, the work that you are accomplishing in this world until that great day of Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.